Welcome to the I'm Possible podcast. My name is Simon Drew and I am your host as we delve deep into the lives of my wonderful individual and unique guests. With a series of direct questions, my intention is to bring a deeper understanding of how humans learn to first survive and then thrive in this lifetime. My guests will be invited to reflect on their journeys so far and the keys to their own growth and the best and worst of experiences. Please join me as we explore together the I'm Possible life. Welcome Alex Barker today to the I'm Possible podcast. She is an author, a speaker, a community builder and a badass pirate queen which will become a little bit more relevant through this conversation, I'm pretty sure. So welcome, Alex. Um, we're going to go dig straight into uh, question one, okay? So please paint a backdrop of your early life up to adulthood, the where's, who's, what's and how's of your upbringings, key events and situations until you fled the nest. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, so the, the my childhood in a nutshell, um, I, so my background, my parents are from Hull. This is really key. <laughs> They're Northern, you know. Hull, Hull's well known for being one of the most boring places in the UK, isn't it, I think? <laughs> yeah, my dad- Supposedly. Supposedly, my dad sometimes refers to um, what he calls like, something like the Bermuda Triangle of the North is like, Hull, Helen, Halifax. Um, so they're not. So they're not like particular. I mean, they're they're very um, proud of their northern roots. And I should also say that my, all my grandfathers were fishermen. So there's a little, you know, very seafaring background um, in in our blood. And they, oh, you know, that generation that um, were the first to go to college or higher education, have a higher education, and and able to do something with that. My parents moved down to London um, before I was born, so I was never, never grew up northern. Um, and we were in Walthamstow in East London for a while. My dad always likes to remind me that I'm an East E17 e gal, which was amusing, you know, if you watch EastEnders. Uh, it's funny because I don't sound like an EastEnder at all. Obviously, that's why it's funny. But um, so we, I stayed there till uh, we were... I was six-ish and then we moved out to Buckinghamshire. And I do think that ge geography is, is key in you know, explaining my childhood because it, it's the sh kind of shaping influence of all your cultural conditioning. Um, I grew up in Buckinghamshire, which is um, one of the counties in the UK that has the 11 plus. So you're tested um, to go into high school, which I think is a really key uh, formative thing. You're essentially categorized and sorted into smart and not smart at age 11. I, I, I appreciate some of the benefits of grammar schools a public school system that is is quite high quality education but at the same time if you are sorted into not smart or you're on the borderline that stays with you you know we talk about yeah. memories that get locked into your <laughs> into your nervous system that's definitely one of them practicing for those 11 plus tests um and then uh, you know i passed 11 plus and went to uh, grammar school and you know you're in a very competitive friendly so i'd say it was a, it was a really nice school but I feel that the, um, the need to achieve was drilled into me very early on. It, again, not, not in a damaging way, but I did every curricular, extracurricular activity you could do. 
I did ballet three times a week. I played like hockey to a really high level. I did the piano. I was terrible at it. I still persisted. And then, you know, you still have to get really good grades at school. So the sense of having to be an all round achiever and like tick a lot of boxes and that this is, you know, some path to success, you know, was, was, a, was six or seven years drilled into me, I'd say. Um, and then I went after, so that, so that's really in a nutshell, my school, but I had a really nice, um, experience at school. I was very well adjusted. I don't have, I didn't have any issues. I was good at getting on with people. I was pretty popular and, um, I know people have had really horrible experiences at school, but I had a great one, truthfully. School's interesting, isn't it? I think. Yeah. For many of us. Yeah, we, I mean, that, that 11 plus, I didn't have to do the 11 plus. Luckily, I was at a regular secondary school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that sense, what I heard there was really that sense of pressure, just we're, just becoming aware that there were things to do and you had to do them. And some of them you may have enjoyed, some of them you may not have enjoyed. But as a child, that's quite a lot to be dealing with, isn't it? I, one of the things I've become very aware of in the last few years is... is you know, the, the Scandinavians now, you know, they don't go into formal education with their children until like seven or eight, I believe now. Mm, and they, mm. it's mostly play. Um, and I think in the Western world, you know, over here in the UK and in the States as well, they, there's, like you say, they're, they're chasing numbers at like three and four, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, chasing standards. And um, it's, um, while there's good to it, I think there's a, a lack of, joy and just generally just acting like a normal human without the constraints of any kind of pressure to do anything or be anything yeah I think that's, that's a really good point and I struggled with it when I got into adulthood more because I think I didn't have the environment of my family around me like my family are so amazing and they are what created the balance because they're all a bit bonkers and um, we had a lot of fun and a lot of play um, we would you know make up games and do fancy dress and all sorts of stuff. And my parents were pretty relaxed about, you know, needing to achieve. They, they always encouraged us, but they never put any pressure on me. It, the pressure was definitely self-generated and, and generated by my peer group and teachers and things like that. So I can't say that they, that, that came from them at all. And I think once that fell away and I didn't see my family as much, then that sense of internalized pressure just built. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of reconciled being a being in your own in your own world really isn't it you step out the front door when you leave to go to uni or or start your first job and have your own place and it suddenly feels like you're a grown-up it did to me it was like oh now i'm a grown-up oh you have to do this all yourself now and there is a you know there's a, a gradual path of sort of owning that that situation mm. um so how how did um, how did you get into work? How did you start professional life? Did what was your what did you did you do? You know, go to university. How, how did you progress into that? Yeah, of course I went to university. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> there was no getting out of that one. You know, that was is what they were all gearing us up to. So um, I went to um, I went to university in London. I did a initial undergraduate degree in comparative literature which is an American degree uh, where you compare books. Um, I've been, I'm always been a big reader. So I just wanted to sort of continue that. I was good at English literature. You had to do a language with comparative literature. So I'd, I'd studied French. So I was trying to continue that. Um, and that was all really fascinating. I loved my degree. It was really interesting. Um, 
so no, I mean, no complaints with that. Uh, I found going to university in London quite hard because there was just no sense of um, community in the way that you've got on other campus universities, what I could see and compare with my friends. Um, I, it was good and it was bad, you know, it, I liked being in the big city, I felt like I was growing up faster, but at the same time, I, I there was a, it was harder to make close friends, I'd say. Um, so, it, yeah, generally it was positive that what happened at the end of the degree was um, we had a global recession. It was like 2008 and um, yeah, yeah. the sense of getting being able to get a job with a literature degree didn't feel that achievable. Um, and I, I mean, I probably could, but I, you know, was obviously trying to figure out what exactly to do and had no idea anyway. Um, so I stayed on at university for another year and did a master's because my parents very generously said, you know, if you want to keep studying or do something different, um, you can. And I did a master's degree in international relations with a focus on Middle East politics. Um, it was almost, it was a really accidental decision. It was one of those things where I know it sounds really heavy, but I sort of arbitrarily fell into it. I was like, my friend of mine was doing a similar course and I've always been interested in politics. I did politics A-level and I love the political, and like I gravitated towards books that had a political agenda. So when there was a fictionalized version of a political situation, particularly internationally, I, that was what I was really fascinated on, the Vietnam War, you know, Afghanistan, whatever. I just ha have had more of a global outlook, I think. So, and then I, I got, um, I don't, I just picked the Middle East modules. I don't know why, but I just gravitated towards it, partly because we were, the backdrop of the war in Iraq was very present at the time. And so I sort of wanted to understand more about that. I felt that maybe it would help me with my future career that I was more politically informed. Um, and also I've got um, family in Israel. So something about wanting to understand that conflict in more detail. Yeah. And I knew I liked politics, so that was fine. Anyway, went through that. That was mind blowing. That course that year, I think, was really. I was going to say, I, I'd be massively interested in doing that right now, um, mm. and I'm going to say a little bit more about this because I've become um, one of the books you may have been aware of is the book called Ishmael. Uh, there's also two books that follow on from it. It's my, it's probably my favourite ever book. I, li I, li I listen to books because I'm not very good at sitting with a book and keeping my eyes open generally. Um, but I listened to it five times last year. <laughs> uh, it's only listening, it's about five and a bit hours, five hours, 20 or something like that. The reason I mention it is um, uh, a lot of that book, the grounding in that book is around the Fertile Crescent. So 10,000 years ago when farming yeah. started. Uh, which is all obviously it's very Middle East, where the Middle East is, yeah. and um, and from further reading and uh, also a series of programs on the BBC, would you believe, um, um, via um, documentaries by a guy called Adam Curtis, who you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. All of his stuff, a lot of it is political based or sociological kind of uh, ideological thinking, democracy, social, all that kind of stuff. But it's very interesting and kind of has that political bias to it in a sense. Um, and yeah, the Middle East is really predominant. The way I relate to the Middle East is it's really a bunch of tribes still dealing with a modern society somehow. Yeah. And I mean, a there's lots of different tribes within an individual country. Um, and 
I it is absolutely fascinating <laughs> because it's like a jigsaw puzzle that is almost, I think a lot of it basically is unanswerable because so many things happen all at the same time and you can get a rough idea of the truth of what really happened um, and, and some things are more clear to see than others. Um, but I think it's just a fascinating human problem the middle east in in many respects in the way that it, you know there's so much infighting and war and, and and things that are just obviously not really ideal for for us to have a peaceful happy life so um i can really see how you get your teeth into that material mm. um that was me ranting I, I do a rant now and again so you carry on <laughs> so, no, so no. you did the, you did, the, you did your masters in that then yeah yeah i think that's you've summed it up well that it's um that it is and that's where they start really with the idea that the history and the imposition of the na nation state structure onto essentially what is a uh, yeah collection of different tribes and people who've organized themselves in a totally different way so i like you know i'm very interested in where the, the political in the sense of the the uh, the structures that we create to try to govern and organize ourselves meet the personal so how humans actually interact with that and what comes of it I think if I was to conclude anything from that whole course and year, it would be that the storytelling background that I had from literature was was helped to inform my understanding of politics so much that actually it often comes back down to that the narrative that is created around the events, um, and that is often diff, you know I don't necessarily believe that there is a, a one truth that it is just all perception, and so people with a different ideologies create different versions of it and yeah so if you've got if you understand stories you understand politics far more effectively than if you just take an economic view for example um and i began thinking actually in relation to you know our shared work i that that in understanding international relations theory and this you know very much informs unfortunately the way that the whole economy is run now with the idea of rational man at the center which i don't I don't buy at all. And it's really nice to see that now that's coming out a bit more, that people are questioning economic models. But at the time it felt really, you, you really couldn't question it. Like that was that was what you were just taught, you know. And I remember thinking, especially when you study countries like Israel or countries like Russia, that we should imagine them more like, um, well, first of all, the idea of rational man is, is false because we all have different psychologies and they're built upon our lived experience. And now that people are understanding trauma much more, we get that, but we should view nation states in the same way. Like the country, um, Israel, which is a very uh, new country, is built upon a huge trauma. And so we cannot expect it to behave in the same way that the UK would behave because we are built off an empire. Um, and and that, that is an entirely different cultural mindset that um, leaders have inherited about the way that they think what the country can do and not cannot do and what the limitations are and all of that stuff that is part of our internal makeup so yeah i think it would just be much more interesting to look at nation states through a psychology lens but again that's not really that's not something that, that, that came up you know it's like the us trying to differ understand what russia is doing but not not having the level of maybe paranoia that that society has at a base level and so the, you make you make different assumptions about what your enemy is doing and that's the whole you know whole base yeah yeah i mean it's almost like you could have a, a range of characteristics for each nation as just 
sensations and feelings just like an individual human yeah. body, couldn't you? Couldn't yeah. you? And yeah. then you put two of them in a room and see how they complicate. You, you give them a problem and then you get them to talk about it. And then one point of view from one nation state will be based on the trauma, the the the, 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 the ideals, the narrative they have about life in general, about product, about money, whatever it might be against the other person and it, it, I get even in, in the word against you know it's like like there is going to be it's not going to be a smooth conversation necessarily but finding overlap just in that that idea of those two individuals which are nation states or, or, or countries um as a concept is a really interesting one because it simplifies and really it, it's a really clear way of understanding why there are difficulties with countries just like you say right it's going on right now russia and the uk america getting involved in conversations um nomad having you know interpreters other diplomats involved you can imagine how difficult it is to come sort of to some sort of realistic um point without pressing any buttons <laughs> pardon the pun i guess in that one <laughs> yeah 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 um so, so yeah, uh, that's a really intriguing, and it's really fascinating that you, in your education, led you into that pathway, and and how um, the use of the language and the narrative became you you could see through those lenses um, how those interpretations could be made about people and about um, countries. That's really mm. cool. Really is cool. And I, it, it, I know where we're going with your, your career here coming up, but it's, it <laughs> yeah. really does lay a good foundation for how you, you've moved from there. So please carry on, Alex. Yeah, so that was, I mean, I could go into that much deeper, you know, and talk about it all day, really. But <laughs> moving on, um, I, uh, I then, yeah, so I was interested in system change and, and how you solve problems. and But at that time... I certainly didn't have the personal confidence to really challenge anyone who was older, wiser, more experienced than me anyway. So I, and, and perhaps that's absolutely right, you know, you're in a, on a, a learning journey. And I I came out of that um, master's degree. I went to the Middle East for six months. I traveled around um, that fertile crescent you mentioned and tried to experience something of the region from a ground level although obviously I couldn't I'd done a brief course in Arabic but I couldn't really speak to a, any level of fluency um and I was very grateful to have seen you know Syria before the war and things like that um and and it really was it was like that was really profound the whole the whole six months um it didn't leave me with any state of certainty though about anything of course you're going to a deep into conflict zones and and trying to um understand it and actually what I probably came away with was you know as we know friend lifted we are animals first and we feel things in our bodies and I think the 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 emo heightened emotional state when you're in places where there's conflict and tension it just affects you at, 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 at a body level uh, in a way that you you know no amount of rationalizing and trying to understand it intellectually stops it from affecting you at an emotional level so I kind of came home, I came home pleased to have done it and quite fired up about wanting to support um, or work towards solving, I suppose, injustice in the world. I'd say when I came back, I was pretty self-righteous to a degree because I came back and, you know, told my family this, that and the other. And with all the exuberance of youth, <laughs> like how they should, what they should be doing differently, how they should change the world, etc. And they were not really 
keen I think <laughs> um and, and that's again fine I think I I realize now that I don't think that my intentions were in the wrong place I just hadn't understood quite how to where to put those intentions and how best to create change which is I guess what I'm doing now um so I initially went into working in a campaigning organization called Global Citizen, which was then called the Global Poverty Project. And I got a really great internship um, on their campaigns team, which really utilized my storytelling kind of communications background uh, on, uh, yeah, and there was like loads of really, I mean, they really gave me uh, some license to do some interesting stuff there. It was a good internship, although it was unpaid. So I, after I was working as a waitress at the same time and after a while, kind of had to get a paid job. Um, I didn't, I got initially a paid, another paid internship, which paid me minimum wage for, it was only three months. That was depressing. And I started to sort of lose a bit of faith that I was gonna go anywhere, probably a little bit too soon, but being back in London after having had that incredible experience, London can be, you know, quite a, a challenging place to just exist in. Um, yeah. And I, so then I kind of hit, hit a bit of a quarter life crisis moment. Um, <laughs> where I just thought, I can't, I don't know if I if I can do this. I think there was two things. There was, I remember having a conversation with my dad that was really formative where I still felt like I held, having done the internship with um, Global Citizen, I got even more exposure to like global injustice. I started to go into gender inequality and some really horrific stuff. And we, I understood systemic problems in a different way. Like thing, I, we started to talk about, um, vulture funds and how they were essentially private equity funds that could buy third world debt and hold them to ransom on it. And I just thought, how is this, how does the system allow for this? How are we sitting by, and this was going, there was a campaign at the time that we were supporting that was to stop these things going through the UK courts. So I thought our government knows this and it's just like, this is the way the world works. And that angered me so much. And I said to my dad, you know, who's a lawyer, and I was like, how, how can this stuff happen? And he just said, look, you've got three options in life. You can go off the grid, find some corner of the world where you don't have to partake in all of this. You can um, just try and live the best life you can, get a good job, earn a good, you know, decent amount of money and have your own family and try and be happy. Or you can try and fight a cause. And he's like, that's the hardest option. <laughs> he's like, it's the option I've chosen. Because he's like, I, I yeah. stand up for people against the justice system and the system is often rigged. And I just, and I thought, well, that's obviously the route I'm going to go down. But I, but I felt so depleted. <laughs> at the time and then I ended up going right I I don't know why I took this course but I took a deviation I um, was like I want to write I, I that's the thing that brings me a lot of joy I'm going to write about the things I care about maybe write a little mini book or something and then I'm going to be a fitness instructor at the same time don't ask me why it's because I was quite sporty at school I thought I could be a fitness instructor I completely ignored the fact that I like would go out and like drink all weekend at this point <laughs> so <laughs> I just you know like I was like sidelining that point I was like no I could, I, could, I could do this too and I went through this fitness course realized very quickly that this is not my tribe at all and that I was never going to fit into this this kind of gym world so kind of ba abandoned that um I went back finally was like okay I'm gonna have to go back to what I was trying to do in the first place try and get another job in a company that I'm interested in and there was a lot of going around the houses at this point I worked in a pub with an alcoholic owner um, that was a bit of a nightmare. I took a job in a PR company for a bit, which again, didn't really love, but learned some stuff. And then I they eventually got a job in a social care charity for a year. And um, truth be told, um, 
I'm sort of, this is one of the questions where I'm like, do I want to answer this question or not? Or I'll talk about this, but I think I will. I, this is my first job that was permanent, bear in mind, like after university. And I was very much, I was the sort of admin person for an, an office that looked after seven or so sites for people with mental health problems and learning disabilities. So I've got a really frontline understanding of what was going on in health and social care, what it was like to be a social worker, and what kind of people they were working to support, and all the admin and bureaucracy that goes around it, like the CQC and all the inspections that they do, which has informed a lot of my work now. But but the thing was, unfortunately, my ma I was I was basically working for one guy. It was just the two of us really in the office most of the time, and um, he made it clear that he had other feelings for me, which I didn't reciprocate. And I had a boyfriend at the time, and then that situation kind of exploded into a prolonged period of tension, where yeah, he I didn't understand. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately that stayed with me for quite a long time after, because I've never really talked about this before because I sort of see it within the realm of personal things, but at the same time it is, it, it definitely had a, a long lasting impact. And, um, it almost cement one thing it re that really cemented in my brain was he, he was very adamant. He had a very, particular view on workplace culture which was you work as hard as you possibly can all hours and that's just how you get Do ahead needs to be done. Yeah, yeah you know he yeah, yeah. he brought work hard basically the, the old graft graft yeah. graft graft of the stuff to do yeah, exactly yeah. exactly that that and that i already had enough of the self-imposed productivity kind of um mindset already you know you don't have to tell me i already know i'm i was trying to be an overachiever and then have him that compound that. And then because we had this conflict, like he would sort of, I felt use that as leverage. Um, and some of the stuff I look back and what that I did, I think was utter madness. Like I would work well over my hours. I was paid like 20 grand a year, but barely, you can barely rent in London on that. And um, so effectively, I, let, let's clarify, it yeah. sounds like you were being mentally manipulated as well as just forcing, you know, doing the work ethic and then his his view on how he felt about you became a more of a manipulative tool for him to leverage your, it sounds like you made, did you crash at the end of this particular <laughs> year? <laughs> what happened next? <laughs> um, well, I just, you know, it's one of those things where I, the only person I really talked about, talked about it to in depth was my then boyfriend. And, and it just caused again, tension there because he was like, you should do something about it. But I didn't really know what I could do because just the way that HR was set up without, and also what I was doing in my actual job was dealing with conflict between staff. So I knew exactly how the HR procedure for complaints worked. And I knew how unlikely it was that unless you had really concrete evidence, anything would happen as a result. It was, he was really careful. It was always just my word against his and in the interpretation of what was being said and done. Isn't it ironic though, Alex, that you were in that, working for that organization and it was happening within their own walls uh, as some, you know, to a degree, uh, it's just very ironic. <laughs> it is, yeah, and it's it's one of those things where um, it's really hard to name and define at the time. And this is, you know, obviously all the cases with any kinds of abuse. And I I'm hesitant to even use the word abuse because I just because it was a long time ago, and um, 
you know, to a degree before this happened, we actually had a good relationship. So there was a level of closeness that was there before this all happened. But well, the one thing that's telling is that during the pandemic, he actually phoned me. I don't know how he still had my number and apologized. And uh, I didn't pick up, but he left a voice mail and uh, apologized. So obviously there was a, an, a, an understanding of there being some wrongdoing there. But I was like, I don't want, I, you know, I, knowing what getting into a conversation with, with him was like, I just said, I don't want to, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to talk about this. It's in the past and that's, I'm done. Um, but after that year, yeah. So after I, I just was like, I've got to get out of this. Like, I just need to get another job that's it and you know I put in a year so I was like okay I can get and uh I didn't I don't know if I crushed after it I just was so grateful to move on um but I think it probably informed my levels of confidence and the way that I worked for a long period of time after that yeah I think what did you learn I'm intrigued to know what you learned about the way that the that care system organization managed the stress that people were under and and dealt with I imagine HR was rife with kind of all sorts of um, well-being issues being brought up among people. I, I can imagine that it would have been, uh, it's one of the, probably one of the most difficult jobs to continually do for for, for anybody, I would think. Um, yeah, <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's a really tough job and most of the work, I mean, there was, oh, I could go on for this, go on about this for ages. It's, there's all kinds of things that were not working, but I, I did not uh, at the time, um, understand any of that or think about how to change it. That just wasn't even in my remit. I just like do do what you're told and and get on with it um, rather than think about what to change. Um, I'd say there was very little, there was a lot of the, all the care aspect was directed towards um, the clients that they were dealing with and how they could make improve their lives. And, and I would say that there was some some good stuff, some really good stuff that happened there. Mm. The care for the staff was was not staff were definitely. I felt that staff was seen as a problem a lot of the time, and they did they they did have a lot of there were a lot of conflicts that arose, but no one really looked into perhaps why that was happening. Everyone was paid a very minimal amount, and it was always a sense of how can we pay people less, <laughs> um, or like make cost cutting measures, and they were constantly being assessed. I think that was something that. Um, the amount of paperwork that these people had to complete would blow anyone's mind and 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 this is not the skill set they had either you know the skill set was that we we're actually very good with we had some incredible um managers of some of the sites who were so good with the clients and like supporting them and, and talking to them and helping and working with their needs and had real obviously a lot of emotional um intelligence there but but this paperwork side was not was not for them you know they didn't they always were behind and then that made them move into sort of disciplinary measures because of it rather than working with them how they could make that system more easy um, for them to be able to uh, document what they need to document without having to constantly be coming into the office and filing stuff so that probably, I mean, i'm sure that that's all moved on now but they became real problem it's interesting i mean i'm i'm what's come to mind is that that sounds a little bit like what what's happened in the police force in that they're dealing directly with and i don't i'm not i don't know a great deal about it but there's lots of over documentation and it's over documentation because of the legal all the legality issues that may be raised down the line mm. so it's a form of protecting the organization or protecting people on some level 
but actually it just makes life so much more difficult for doing you know the person you just described who was really you know uh, emotionally intelligent with people and he really understood what was required how to deal with people on a personal level really that's all that work is about <laughs> when you start yeah. having to tick boxes when you start having to tick boxes and write explanations it's not really what that person's really there for um it's, that's just a reporting job and, mm. and yeah let's hope things like technology voice recording and things like that could come into play or you know voice um typing up for you well, i can't remember the word you know when you, you use a i've got a piece of software that you can read into it and it types it all up for you um those kind of things would save a lot of time but i'm sure most of these the level of organization you're talking about here they, they just don't have the resources necessarily to, to, to do that um yeah, and you'd like to think technology and just better ways of and more um, trusting ways of. And the problem is here is that there's a lot of trust involved when you're dealing with people in difficult situations, making sure they're well managed and not taken advantage of. Um, but the actual amount of work that's being done nationally or globally on on just paperwork and ticking boxes is phenomenal. It's really and it. It could arguably, I mean, with the police force, I don't know the exact figures, but it wouldn't surprise me if they had 40% of their time, they're sat at a desk typing notes up, um, maybe even more. <laughs> when, you know, the, the, old, the old idea of having the, the Bobby that lives, does his beat up and down your local village road or town yeah. road or wherever, and everybody knows him um, and has respect for the person he is as opposed to the uniform he's wearing. Um, somebody who can contribute and be allowed to sort of help manage difficult situations yeah. is long gone from our society, but actually it's really where the foundation of, of policing is. Um, you know, general sort of awareness and safety of everybody. Um, mm. Anyway. I, I was going to say that I've had just had a really long conversation about the police on our podcast last week and that episode will oh, come really? out next week. Yeah, because I was talking to the woman who organised the Reclaim These Streets protest after... Sarah Everard died to obviously oh, yeah. recognise the, um, you know, she organised the vigil on Clapham Common that got um, interrupted by, the, interrupted as a polite word by the police. And, um, you know, that, that conversation is about the, um, not so much what you're describing, but the, the kind of double standards of turning a blind eye to what um, Downing Street are doing with their parties and not following rules versus women who've tried to legally organize a um a memoriam of a woman who died at the hands of a police officer they were you know very much in talks about how to create it in a safe way make it socially distanced not break covid restrictions etc and, and that was there was no cooperation there was no willingness to work with them and um yeah that so that all comes out in that podcast um, probably like you, especially over the last couple of years, you know, for all the reasons we're, we're quite aware of, um, I, I've I've very much taken a stance that I could easily go down a rabbit hole in that conversation that you're just describing. I'd listen to your podcast and spend a week reading and learning, and I just my life has to carry on. And and I, I mm. the way I, I we're we gonna we're gonna go more into where your career's gone and life has gone for you shortly. But it, for me. I, I could get I get worked up about stuff like this when there's injustice. It really does bother me, um, and I know I could use a lot of time learning about it and really revising about it and figure out what I could individually do with other people. And I'm on my own little crusade with what I do, doing this and doing the fitness work I do, doing working with people on that kind of lifted coaching style, of, um, more deep stuff, and. 
there's only so much time one has. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I, I get, I can really get attached to going down rabbit holes. Um, and I've did that a few times during the lockdown as well, because we had time. You raise a really interesting point here about um, being informed um, and, but also dealing with different problems in a 21st century con context, because we are now in a, p a place where human beings absorb far more uh, content, images, knowledge than we have ever had to contend with in the history of the human homo yeah. sapiens, you know, and we're not really wired for it. And so it's incredibly challenging. And the situation we seem to have now with social media, where it's like every time that there's something that goes wrong, everybody has to comment, have an opinion, have do something, you know, I don't think that that is the right way to go in order to actually solve anything because um, you're divert you're just fracturing people's attention and energy and actually you're far better placed and I think you're right and you're far better placed finding the thing that matters the most to you um working on that finding other people who are in the same camp not trying to necessarily get it to absolutely everybody um finding out what levers you need to pull and just working on that um rather than the way that we are kind of operating at the moment uh and and it brings about so much shame and guilt that I don't, I don't, you, why don't you know about the plight of the Afghan children? It's like, well, because I've been thinking about climate change for a week. <laughs> uh, and, and also, you know, I know from doing Be More Pirate, which we'll obviously come to, I say this a lot because I just see it all the time. And it's why pirates works. You have to turn what you're fighting against into what you're fighting for. Um, it's if you let all your energy hang in the negative emotions, the, the rebellion, against what's wrong and that's where your attention is you burn out mm. like really quickly um so as an activist or anyone who cares about doing something you you have to find out what alternative you're building and let that power you yeah it's true and, and really you know as you said I, I i literally in what i said i concluded that as well that's why i do what i do I know when I go, every bit of work I do, including this conversation, because we're having a good conversation here where we're digging into stuff and learning a bit about each other and about a bit more about the world and about the way things function, um, is that I I probably deal with, at the moment, about 30 different people. They're 30 individuals, but it's a group of 30 people, and in each one gets value from working with me and vice versa. I, I, get, I get stuff from working with them. Um, and that's my contribution and there's going to be more bigger contributions maybe coming down the line as, as things change and develop um but just because i'm only working with 30 people doesn't make i'm not mean i'm not making a difference i know i make a difference with people and and that for me has been a journey for me for the last 25 years or so um, in terms of how i've got to where i am today um Mm. And you're, you're totally right. One of the things I learned and implemented so much over the lockdown period and through the whole nonsense of the last couple of years is literally becoming much more aware of where I put my energy, where what I listen to. I don't I don't have the TV on. I don't have a TV to I watch films and series by choice. I don't have adverts on or anything. I don't listen. I have the radio on for the dog when I go out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, gener I generally get irritated by any kind of news program because I know it's somebody's chosen to project that out thinking it's the most important thing right now. Um, and it's not necessarily the most important thing right now. The most important thing right now is what I choose it to be in the context that I'm somebody who's really making a difference. <laughs> um, 
so it's staying learning to stay focused and not get distracted because we the thing about the modern world and all this communication thrown at us is we it's so easy to be distracted it's exactly that's a key key into like key differentiator of like the, being a pirate is so when you turn inwards towards your inner compass and stop taking dictation from the outside just because somebody tells you you should care about x y z doesn't mean you then have to fra- frantically um try and do something about that like you know in yourself where you're best placed to make a difference or where you're well, yeah what fuels you i guess that's that's how i describe it and um i like what you said also about kind of yeah just turning a lot of things off um yesterday i was on a panel discussion with um bonnie greer who's a playwright and quite you know well known in the art sector and it was also just such a pirate like she's so well acclaimed because she when you listen to her you're like wow like there's somebody who knows what they're about um and isn't you know is fearless in their in their challenge and she said one of her it's almost like she when she was talking she was expressing her own pirate code although she wouldn't have necessarily called it that up until that panel discussion one of them was stay stay stupid and she said i just i don't try to know who everyone is i don't try and figure out who the most important person in the room i actually just try and remain as ignorant of a lot of the trends that are going on as possible because in that space of unknowing is real creativity and she made told an anecdote about how she didn't know who tom hiddleston was who's like a famous actor and yeah she was like what i, I just knew he came to one of my my classes and um so i, I yeah I, I took a lot from um the, what she said and and the power of not being so distracted by where people are pulling you. Yeah, that's a really interesting point in terms of the um, staying stupid. I, I relate that to me unlearning, progressively unlearning, in the, and, and, and also I'm very aware as well these days, I was brought up with definite right and wrong. There was a right way and a wrong way, completely binary thought thinking. There's no grey. <laughs> um, so when I... If I find myself, and I usually feel it in my body before it happens, I'll, I'll be righteous about something. It doesn't happen very much now because I've practiced so much now, but it does happen now and again. Yeah. I'll feel uncomfortable. Think, oh, it's not the truth anyway. What, it's not true. None of this is true. It's just a perspective. And it, all, always, it literally comes down to whatever I'm thinking about, whatever the point of view is. It's literally a point of view. It's just a point of view. Um, so I live in this sort of world now where it's very difficult to define truth, real, real truth, actual truth. Yeah. Um, which lives that, uh, you know, yeah, it means you're basically open to being stupid all the time because there is no right, there is no wrong. It's just somewhere in the middle or, you know, maybe verging one way or the other. But um, anyway, uh, we, we let's get us up to date now then, Alex. What, what happened <laughs> next? I forget where we are. We've, we've left this year-long job, I think. Yeah. So then I went to work at the RSA. Um, which is the Royal Society of Arts, um, which is a, a think tank slash social innovation charity. And um, I was so, so happy to go and work there because it's it's just, it was an entirely different environment. It's a beautiful office in central London. Um, very much all the, I mean, I have lifelong friends from the RSA because we were quite, people with quite similar worldviews, I'd say, uh, generally speaking, which I now in hindsight think is a problem, but <laughs> at the time it was very, you know, very comforting having come from where I'd come from. And I just very easily slotted into that team. I love my boss. He's, he's great. And 
we had a nice time. It was a nice job and I kind of progressed up um, there. I had, uh, I became the communications manager for the team, which was the, probably the best suited role for me there. And um, these were what I'd call maybe the, the asleep years to a degree, because I sort of just, I was after having had that really tough experience, I just wanted to be able to have a bit of stability, a regular income, they paid me more and I moved in with my boyfriend and went through that period of very comfortable trajectory towards having a home and a secure job and climbing the ladder and all of that. 2.1 kids, which we'll come to later, but it's all that, isn't it? The, the kind of ideal life. Yeah. 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 That was the seven, that was seven years I'd say where I just, I wouldn't say I coasted. There was, so there were things along the way, like I was constantly trying to write a novel because I still kept that writing dream alive. Um, but I, I went to a writing group and I faffed around with this novel. Um, and what was your novel about? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Has it been published? No, no, no. I mean, no, it's still sitting in my metaphorical drawer. Yeah. Um, I sent it to one agent in the end. I mean, there's, I'll get to that, but she, and, and she was like, she'd seen the first two chapters that she liked and then didn't like the whole thing, which is fair. And then I just, and then I started being more pirate. So I just have ignored it ever since, but it took me a long time to get there. Probably because I have a perfectionist tendency and I should have just submitted it sooner. But anyway, so I kind I know of, that one. yeah, exactly. Oh, so I'll, I'll revisit the bloody no, the novels about um, a, a young couple who get caught up in the seven seven bombings, the Traverstock Bears square bomb. Because it's bringing my Middle East kind of all like all I learned about sort of terrorism, I guess. And but with the back, so I wanted to talk about the, the the moment that my generation had gone through, where there was this backdrop of terrorism, the global recession, and the advent of social media things that really shaped how we interacted with the world and I think I still think that that those themes need to be talked about in a, in a novel content I'm sure they are in, in other um, novels but I just I, I do still want to bring that to life somehow but anyway um, so I was on this so I was working at the RSA the, the, the turning point was in 2016 I bought a flat with my boyfriend and um, I got sick um, about I started getting panic attacks <laughs> um, out of nowhere. Like, I am not an anxious person, never have been. I'm very relaxed. I, you know, took myself backpacking around the Middle East with a not a care in the world. I, I'm not someone who worries about, about risk or anything like that generally. And suddenly I was paranoid about everything, particularly food, but I just thought everything was going to make me sick. Um, I just had, un yeah, uncontrollable heart palpitations, panic attacks, which I didn't know what they were. So I went to hospital like three times as like, I'm having a heart attack or whatever. And um, I just had this eight months of just anxiety. Uh, and I didn't know what it was at the time. And then after eight months, I, um, having worried about getting food poisoning for eight months, I got food poisoning when we were on holiday. And I didn't recover from it, basically. I, I, I just had an ongoing sort of stomach problem for the next year which was debilitating in the sense of I was fine I still went to work possibly I shouldn't have done my my ex-boyfriend did say you know at the time I should probably take time off but I just added on I, it also was a distraction because I it was because I still had the anxiety as well I I was just quite depressed with it and I didn't know what to do and I'd been to the doctor so many times no one really 
offered me a an in-depth um, examination or solution because my symptoms weren't that bad. I just had like low level, constant bloating, headaches, um, dizziness sometimes. It's like an all, all over immune system reaction. I would feel nauseous sometimes, but it wouldn't last. It wasn't like I couldn't eat. I didn't have anything that was what they called cause of concern. They were like, you've got IBS and everyone has it basically. Yeah. And I thought, but this, I can't live, like this can't be life. Like I can't just get used to this. This is ridiculous. Like that's not who I am. I kind of refused it to a degree. And then they offered me lots of pills. And I don't know, maybe in hindsight, I should have taken pills, but then there was something in me that just said like, pills is not the solution to this. It's something underneath. There's some reason. That, there's a bit of you in me there. Cause I, <laughs> I, I don't want anything. <laughs> no, stay away from me. <laughs> I mean, it's a really, really difficult thing. And I can understand how people around me were like, you need to take the doctor's advice and take some pills. And at least that will relieve the symptoms for a while. But I, then I'd, I don't know, I'd read stuff that said that that would make it worse and you never know whether I didn't know at the time whether am I going into a spiral of uh, where I need to listen to other people or or am I actually starting that I need to listen to myself and at the time I don't think I really knew and yeah so I just sort of carried on trying to find different solutions changing my diet trying to change my lifestyle a bit with varying degrees of success um and eventually I did find this probiotic that I did, I took for three months and it really helped me to recover. Um, I did other things as well, came off the contraceptive pill, things like that. Um, and I, yeah, I did. And once the stomach issue had recovered, I'd recovered from that. I realized that there was something else going on and that I wasn't actually that happy with all of my life. And this is probably symptomatic of it. And that was, I'd made some, I was making some wrong decisions and, mm-hmm. um, I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't like my job. You know, I said it was quite comfortable. I'd, I'd grown disillusioned with the organization and what it was doing and the way that it, and the way the culture was. Um, I didn't think that the original, my original aim was to go and work for a social innovation charity because it had impact on the world. I couldn't actually see that impact anymore. The route that I was going down was more of a technical route, which wasn't really what I thought I was good at. And then, also, I didn't think my relationship was working either. And actually, that, again, wasn't the path that I wanted to go down. I was very much heading towards maybe marriage and kids. And I just felt like I hadn't even begun to unlock my own potential. And there was such a big risk at that point that I would never do it. That I would just carry on the same, that I then have kids, and then they would become my life. And I just thought, I can't let this happen. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. Yeah, like a, you're feeling trapped, effectively, potentially a future trap entrapment of some kind, you know, stuck in a particular way, you know. Yeah, I can understand how the anxiety, even though you weren't aware of it mentally, could, subconsciously could have been the way you described it, the, 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 the lack of, if you like, what you expected from the work, not delivering what you dreamed it would when you first started. Um, and then with those other things combined... Uh, yeah i don't know exactly where yeah it's it's um it's easy for me to sort of impose a story on it in hindsight i don't know if everything i've said is that you know the anxiety came from those situations but i do know at the end of that year i did want to make some big changes and at that time i didn't even think like oh i don't want kids i just thought whatever the way things are right now 
I, I don't think this is going to end up in a life that I'm going to enjoy. Yeah. 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 So bring us up to date then. <laughs> We're nearly there. Oh, we? I know. It's just like the li- life story. This is 2018. And, and I took, you know, I was like, okay, I'll have to take some steps. And I, I didn't take anything. I didn't do anything that was that bold, really. Um, you know, I, I tentatively left things. So I, I asked for a sabbatical for my job. So I was like, I just need some time out to think. Because also when you're in it, like, I, was, I, like I had a clear plan. I, I just thought, I just need space. And so I said, give me, you know, they, they give you un, unpaid sabbaticals after five years. So I said, can I have six months off? And I'd, I'd worked six days a week to save for that. Um, so I could take time off. I'd taken on a second job, which was um, a domestic violence research project, actually, which is just really interesting. Um, and but also um, quite distressing and then I said to my partner at the time you know I need a break from the relationship I need time time out can we take a break I didn't you know I didn't say we're we're ending but but it was just it was just I won't go into that but it was just really painful um, for various reasons Um, and so I went to I went to visit my best friend who lives in Bali. I know it's a cliche, but I went to Bali for a rest. Um, and when I was in Bali, there was a couple of things that actually really matter, I think, to this story in terms of especially what I advise other people to do and, and when I work with people in coaching situations. I was trying to figure out what exactly I did want out of life that wasn't existent in my current life. You know, if you don't want the domestic situation, what the hell do you want? And I was like, well, I want an adventure. And, you know, everyone tells you you've got your time to have adventure when you're young and you can go off and travel. And then you have to settle down and start taking everything seriously. And I thought, I just don't buy that story. I don't think that the impulses that I have are ever going to leave me. I don't think I'm ever going to not want to travel and feel that, have that sense of adventure in my life. Um, I'm not ever going to want to really settle as a concept. So I... And I know lots of people who really do find that an enjoyable path to take to really create a domestic situation and have a sense of routine. Um, and, and that's really enjoyable to them. And that's completely fine. I just knew that it was not enjoyable to me. So I sat in the British Library, I remember, and was like, OK, what? be more specific with yourself. Like, what do you mean by adventure? Like, break that down. And I was like, it's excitement, some kind of excitement, some la- lack of routine, serendipity, learning like always like be constantly learning and finding new things um and so I was like okay I'm getting close to the nub of what it is but adventure was like the big word that I wrote down and then I went to Bali and after a couple of weeks I sort of like was like I can't stop myself because I'm probably overthinking all of this but I've got to find what what's going to be the next step for me I want to see what you know other jobs are out there and I had signed up to a um, job alerts from Escape the City, which is a, comp- a recruitment company that look at that advertise that more interesting and unusual jobs. And I knew about them because this is a really this is a slightly long-winded story. But years ago, with this same friend that I was with at the moment, she'd taken me to an Escape the City event where I met where the speaker was a guy who'd quit his corporate job and written a book about traveling around Iceland. And the book had done he'd self-published it. It'd done really well. So I went to we went to this talk. I chatted to him at the end and was like, how did you do this? I was like, I want to self-publish a book, which I did. I mean, this is all so circular and serendipitous, I can't believe it, but it, 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 I, I went away, I wrote, I wrote this little book. That was another thing I did in the in the sleeping years. <laughs> I think I 
I wrote this little ebook um, about living abroad and I just interviewed different people about their experience of living abroad and the idea was to get experiences for, like of what it meant to be an expert in different situations from a really ground level because I've always been fascinated in like real personal experiences of, of a of a broader political concept. So, that's an interesting actually isn't it because what you were doing there was trying to get a bit of adventure while you're in the comfort situation of having that job yeah. you were literally searching for it yeah in, yeah. in a literary way weren't you I, I <laughs> that's magical really yeah I, I exactly it was always there you know I was trying to find out I was trying to find a way to create freedom as well for myself and and so that guy who, who wrote the book I published the book um didn't really go anywhere because by that point my job was too busy and I didn't have the time and I thought this is too much effort I have to park this for a bit and um so escape so escape city had kind of always been in the trajectory of like what I've been trying to do and interestingly uh, it's mentioned in Be More Pirate as well um and then one day when I was in Bali my friend and I went on a trek up to a volcano and she said to me we're going on a micro adventure and I was like oh that's a nice little way to put it it's when you have like a mini adventure for a day or so and she goes oh it's not my phrase it's this guy Alistair Humphreys who write, has written a book about micro adventures that's like this whole thing like how can you be more adventurous within your like daily life or I explored that when it came out I think I think I did read the preface to it I, did, I didn't read the whole thing but yeah yeah so that was his whole because it was when he had kids I mean I know this now but when Al had kids he couldn't go off on really long adventures anymore so he had to figure out how he could bring that spirit into his like the rest of his life and, and and help and help other people with families and kids to do that and i think that's a really great great thing to do it's a great concept isn't it yeah yeah and um anyway she said oh you should check him out on instagram so i did i, I followed him and then literally two days later i saw a job advert to be his assistant in my <laughs> inbox from this um escape city and i was like oh my god and i looked at the job description i was like this is everything that i can do he wanted help doing his blog social media stuff, all the stuff I'd done at the RSA already, but on a really light touch level, you know, you had to work seven hours a week, you could work from anywhere in the world, you wanted people to be interested in travel. And I, I just Perfect. like, I just remember thinking, this is exactly what I'm going to do. This is it. <laughs> um, this is going to open a new door. I just know it. And I remember my friend being like to me, yeah, like, it's really great that you're so enthusiastic, but he has a lot of followers and probably a lot of people are going to apply for this. So, you know, it's great that you're kind of seeing what you want to do, but kind of don't get your hopes up and I remember thinking yeah well I think I'm gonna get this <laughs> and uh, I've noticed it's really with the level of certainty when we talk about you know how much uncertainty there is the level of certainty I felt in myself at that point and yeah I uh, applied for it and then I sort of forgot about it for a bit and then um and then I moved to Vietnam um for to do to try and finish writing that novel <laughs> so I was like oh different project focus on the novel and then yeah like six weeks later he was like uh, Al came back and said, um, can you interview, do a little Skype interview? And then that was it. And we started working together and I started helping him with his, with his new book and everything. From Vietnam straight away? Yeah, yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah. He was like, you can work from Vietnam so long as you can make the time zones work and have a chat once a week. And it was great. I was like, oh, this is exactly the kind of thing I want to be moving into. And um, I, you know, I, it was flexible and I was learning so much from him and built about, yeah. So that... So that was the that was the entry point, um, and then it was about. I mean, unfortunately for Al, I didn't end up doing it for that long because about a month later, I saw the job advert again on Escape the City for the right hand pirate job, 
yeah and I, and I had the same reaction to the job to the right hand pirate job I was I was on an airport transit bus in Vietnam with like squished in looking at my phone like this <laughs> and I just saw it I thought oh my god I was like this is the thing this is it and this was this was a much more like full-time job I'd probably have to go back to London but at this point I was like okay I can do that I'm ready and um was there a hint at being a co-author there or an author for you there as well was that part of it do you think or yeah 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 how was it advertised was it was it like a right-hand man only kind of thing or was it an author-ish thing Oh, well, actually, the initial job, the initial job description was like really brief. It was basically like, help me build a global community out of Be More Pirate and stop me disappearing up my ass. That was how Sam described <laughs> But then when you looked into the longer job description that he sent once to you initially, um, there was there was the potential to write a book about the, um, to basically capture the stories of the people who'd turned pirate, which I knew I could do because I'd written a book with real people's experience. So interviewing people and asking them about experience that I'd already done. Yeah. I had written and edited so many blogs at the RSA from social entrepreneurs trying to talk about their projects. So I knew that I I knew that I knew how to pull out the stuff that mattered. Um, Filter things, yeah. 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 And yeah, obviously yeah. So that there was a sort of a sense that I would but and we never really thought of it as a book. It was maybe going to be like a handbook um at the time. So, no, I didn't really think, I didn't, I could see that within it, there was maybe untold possibility in this, in this uh, job, um, that who knew where it would go, you know? Does, does the word pirates, when you first read the word pirate in that, can you recall, did that make a spark go bing? (laughs) Because I I think looking back, I still related to like Captain Pugwash, (laughs) (laughs) the cartoon character when I heard pirate. But Mm. when you, when now we understand more what the word is, definitely it's kind of a, ah, radical optimism in all kind of manner of directions, all down to you, taking that ownership and sovereignty of your own, direction and and but there's a spark in the energy of the word now um Mm -hmm. which makes me it's this excitement there and i would Mm. i just wondered if when you read the word pirate in the advert whether it had that effect on you whether you just went into the detail of it um well i didn't really see the actual the traditional pirates come through because i was looking at the book in its current modern form and bear in mind that i i saw some I could see Sam's positioning um, because I knew he'd been a speaker at the RSA and I could, and I also knew, like I'd read a lot of like business books about change. And so when I was reading it through, I was looking already, I was looking for like, how is this applicable? What would I take from it if I was learning rather than like, I didn't really focus much on the pirate stories, to be honest with you. Um, I think I was probably the person who's less interested in the history at the time. I've become way more interested in the history now I've gone along, but, and actually things when when I was in Vietnam, and I was applying for the job. There was a couple of things that happened just before that. One, I met a, a journalist. Um, and interestingly, I met a, a journalist who is Lebanese American who'd come from working in Iraq, and where our paths had just collided. And you know, you know, someone like really zones in on you and was like, I remember trying to write my novel in the corner of this hostel, and he was like, Can we talk? I want to talk to you about stuff. And I was like, dude, um, but, but then I got into it and he started talking about the need for a revolution. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm, I've kind of done with all this change stuff for the time being. But then there was a part of me that was going, oh, you know, don't, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to turn, like, avoid this forever. And then I went, weirdly, I went to see, our, um, I went to the cinema to see um, 
Robin Hood, the like new version of Robin Hood uh, in one of the cinemas in Hanoi. And uh, oh my God, I was like, oh damn. Yeah, like the seeds of rebellion were like starting yeah. to trick, you know, I was like, oh, I do believe in all this stuff. And I- The little signals. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of, and then I was like reading Be More Prior at the same time. And I was like, oh, it's, this is the same thing. Like, and then you, of course they call Jack Black Sam Bellamy the Robin Hood of the sea. And I was like, mm, yeah, this is, this, this is like the spirit of rebellion that we definitely need. And, and I think um, I could just, I, and what I was seeing and what Sam was trying to describe was almost suddenly I could see old paradigm and new paradigm. Like these are the rules that I was living by in terms of the way that I operated in my old job and in terms of building a network um, and helping people to um, make change in the world. And here is how I could do it entirely differently. And I could literally just apply everything that didn't work into something, into a different format and something that did work. And that's how I kind of, well, that's what I said to Sam. I was like, I've got all the skills and experience, but we should do it entirely differently. And this is why, because this is what I've seen and it's not going to work. Um, so yeah, that was, and then that was it really. Um, I wasn't, I was skeptical about parts of it because there were things that Sam wrote about in the job description, which sounded like he had just made it sound like what he thought it should sound like. So he was like, we're going to build a global community. And I was like, well, why, but to what end, you know, like, to me, that sounds like you want to grow your newsletter list and get lots of followers and things. Um, but at the same time, you've got a social impact agenda. So I know that the two aren't always compatible because yeah. if you are we focusing on depth or are we focusing on, you know, width or reach? Um, yeah. And you can you can kind of do simul them simultaneously, but I'm more interested in um, if you say people have, whose lives have been profoundly impacted by the ideas in this book, then that's, um, then that's really interesting to me. Yeah, that's really cool. And because it's the impact you're having, isn't it? It's true impact when you're ha having people change the way they perceive their situations and revolutionize their own life and the lives of others around them. Um, and the global impact is that being filtered across the planet, I guess, rather than the, the recognition of online or newsletter signups or any other kind of metric. Because the metrics yeah. really comes down to the, the, the changing in a, in a positive way, the lives of as many people as possible, doesn't it? So having, having, having metrics and, and gives you legitimacy in some, in some respects. And that legitimacy is worthwhile if you can leverage it. So if, for example, you know, when I, I think about other organisations I've worked with and they've got a great brand, they're very, you know, formalised organisation. And, and that's great so long as you're going to then use that to gain loads of funding and direct it in the right places and whatever you're going to do. I don't see that happening necessarily all the time. But what I do know is in terms of like theories of change and networks is that I don't need a um, hundred people to kind of like this idea. I need five people to like to understand it and internalize it so much that they are pirate. And then they go out and they will influence other people and people will begin to, because of the connections and the relationships that they're able to make and show a different way and they'll apply it to their own context. And that, and that's exactly what I've seen. Like the, the community is yeah. captains doing stuff in all kinds of different spheres and it's their strength and their, and their, their realization and their reclamation of their own power that has mattered the most. So it's my job to support them and that, and that not to make sure that my newsletter goes out on time every every week however i would say that 
three years on, I probably should pay a little bit more attention to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still value there, but it, there but is, it is yeah, it, yeah. In, it is ultimately in nurturing just what you've described, isn't it? Um, and I, I, I um, I'm just going to get this out out now. Is yeah. the Be More Pirate book I really enjoyed because it was those, if you like, case studies and were really strong examples, which I thought you did really well at bringing out the highlights from the individual types of different stories, mm. you know, the way you reflected back on them and how those um, those activities that people were doing in different situations were actually really impactful and how literally how they taken the, the guidance from the first book to, and made it real. Yeah. Um, so I found that, I found the second book and more enjoyable because of that. The first book I found factually stimulating, if you like, around how pirates were um and i think it's a uh, it really recontextualized how pirates are and so you know I'll, I'll quite happily stand in the pub and have an argument with somebody about well pirates weren't like that you know <laughs> not that i can retain all of the information right yeah. but some of the way they had like what, what your class is democratic democratics you know equal sex and stuff like that equal pay yeah. Yeah. across the board all those kind of things just resonate as being wholesome and, and and universal and not the not actually what you would have dreamed was happening on a pirate ship um, and obviously we know as well to the contrary on the, the Navy ships, you know, run by our great uh, country, um, we're doing very much the, that, the worst kind, you know, dragging people on board and, and, and not having, you know, just marshalling people around, using them as slaves effectively. Yeah. Shall we move on? This week I am going to be launching something new because I because of the unlifted training that I've done, I've spent the last year thinking about how I want to apply it. I've done some one-to-one -one coaching and I've now created a speaking, a course designed for women to help them improve their confidence and ability to influence through speaking. I just decided that this is the one skill that I have dramatically improved at in the last three years because I have to talk so much. I do public speaking, facilitate workshops, host a podcast, speak on podcasts, etc. And I know how I felt when I started and I know how I feel now. And I've, I've got quite specific techniques and hacks and things. And of course, bringing in all the lifted work around language and um, the, the four step story technique. And I've built that into a program, which I'm now going to launch. So that's really exciting because that's quite a different avenue. I, I bring Be More Pirate into it, of course, because a lot of it is also about giving yourself permission to say the things that you want to say and how you how you create that. But I it feels to me often the base layer of how to initiate change when I'm doing workshops with people and our ability to create constructive dialogue. I, th I think it's a, it's a bit of an underestimated skill and I think that it is not very often practiced. Obviously we talk all the time. So there's to a sense we are practicing, but we're, we're probably practicing in the wrong way. Um, Take out the probably. Take out the probably. I know, right. Well, exactly. I have to catch myself all the time. And that's exactly what we'll be looking at. Um, sometimes, probably, you know, so, I'm saying sometimes it is useful. I, I'm not, I'm actually, and this is a point of contention around whether you should use certain phrases that qualify what you're about to say, because sometimes a softness is helpful. I would say there are other ways you can create warmth and connection that isn't using that, that kind of language, but we're going to, I'm going to explore all of that um, and acknowledge my own journey <laughs> that I'm still on it and that I don't, I don't get it right.
You're completely right on those words, by the way. I, I completely say what you, get where you're coming from here because they, the words sometimes probably, as you've, we just identified, they are a couple of words that if you're relating this, the words to your experience of something are disempowering or can be disempowering. If you're describing something to somebody, the word sometimes or probably can be an invite for them to see not the binary answer, which you, you might be don't do that or do do that. Sometimes you might choose to do this rather than this. <laughs> um, so you're right. And, 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 and I, the journey I've been on much as you've just described I believe is that we still use some in what we'd class as softening words to make things more more easy to swallow for ourselves and others but as doing the language work you understand and you can hear yourself saying them mm. and you you start to re refine your choice of the word whether it's whether it's in the context of what you're saying is worthy to be you be used and that you are actually using it mm -hmm. with a context mm -hmm. not with just a random a randomness or an yeah. unawareness yeah um and that and that you know that continues to be a daily practice for me and i'm sure it is for you and it's going to become much more so and the great thing about teaching is you get to learn a lot more yourself and practice more which is which is going to be great for you exactly. and the people you're working with are going to love it i'm sure but you're going to be rocking that course i'm sure yeah shall we move on i'm going to move on to the more direct questions now what single moment event or issue has produced the most impactful realization and opportunity to you to grow for you specifically what happened and how you moved beyond it and grew I actually think I've probably answered these. Well, I, some, I've answered that question in the sense of those two big um, things of leaving my job and my relationship and were were huge edges for me at the time. So the hardest thing I ever did was the um, leaving the relationship for sure. Um, it was just so painful. Chance to grow. So I think the, it's actually the, the public speaking, the thing I just said about, like, I didn't, that wasn't part of my original remit for my job. I never really thought, you know, you asked me whether I thought that I'd be writing a book. I didn't necessarily, but that's something I'd be comfortable doing. You know, I, I was, I was already thinking of myself that way. Speaking on another hat on, on a, with something else entirely. I don't like being in the spotlight, particularly. I don't like being on camera. And so suddenly I had these moments of, of that happening. Don't or didn't, Alex, don't or didn't. Do you still not like it? I do sometimes. Um, when you say uh, like, I recognise it now as an opportunity for growth. So I see it differently. I've reframed failure. Um, so I don't yeah. um, look at it like when I don't enjoy it, it's because I probably didn't do a good job. And that's usually to do with my energy levels for whatever reason, what else is going on in my life at the time. Um, and that doesn't feel comfortable, of course, because you know when your message lands. When I do do it well, I love it. <laughs> but I don't look at the ones where I don't do as well now with like absolute despair and like I'm no good and all of that crap that was going on before. I look, I look at it like, okay, make sure whatever whatever influence was influencing me at the time, whatever contributed to not doing as well, I change that. So yeah, when when I do it well and I have the opportunity to convey what I want to convey and it makes a difference to people, then I love it. I mean, I, you know, I get messages from people saying, 
that thing that you said has really stayed with me and it's made me have a conversation with someone else where I've mentioned it and now we're having a different kind of conversation altogether and that is the impact that speaking can have so yes you're great at it by the way the, all, all of your speaking today has been been fantastic and I think when you're actually sharing your own story there's a flow to your own story which I think is very confidence inspiring when you're saying it because <laughs> you yeah you might be a bit uncomfortable about talking about certain things but it is you you, you have ownership of your own story and you've clearly as you just said sometimes you you fail mm. you've learned to deal with failure and for many people that can be it can floor them mm. they do it wrong it, they floor themselves and berate themselves and i know you and i were people that did that <laughs> we've learned how to accept that now um and that's a big growth area because it, it just changes your relationship to everything you do there is i, I would you say you've recovered from per perfectionism <laughs> I am recovering. I'm always in recovery. <laughs> Thinking about, um, so no, no, not at all. Um, I definitely, and I also, there's a balance there to be had that you don't want to produce low quality things if you can, if you can help it. There's a real balance to be struck between starting before you're ready versus, um, you know, not not producing the best, doing the best you can actually do. So I have to think about that too. Um, but I, I, I'm much clearer now on the fact that the learning, the process is the goal. So that was the, that's the major shift and difference. You know, having gone through a childhood adolescence where I would do a ballet exam every single year and I'd do a piano exam and it was the getting of the certificate to show that you could do this thing rather than the actual playing or dancing that was the, the purpose to a degree anyway. I yeah. I just was conditioned that way for a really long time. And it was the same with exams and everything. And so to stop seeing things as a box to tick and to start seeing things as a as an ongoing process that never really ends. So I think that I am far better at speaking than I ever was because of the practice. I think I pro can probably still get a lot better. I mean, take out the probably. I know I will get better. So it, it, it's... It, and I say, I'd say to people on the course, like, I am not someone who is 20 years more experienced than you. I'm someone who's maybe got a year's more experience or I've just got a lot of experience very quickly. So it's, and it's useful to be taught by someone who's just a few steps ahead because you're, you, I still feel the, the anxiety and the fear to a degree, but um, I've learned what to do with it. I, I think there's something, uh, I think there's something as well to doing it showing highlighting doing something wrong and then either doing it redoing it in the call or, or in the meeting and owning it and be completely content with oh i made a mistake some people will you know the old me would have literally been beating myself up inside if i did anything wrong and i'd be like stifled then and like mm -hmm. tightened up mm -hmm. because i'd feel pressure that pressure of the the situation now it is oh i said the wrong thing Whoops, a Daisy. Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> um, because ultimately, it me the only person it really impacts is you in a personal sense, and and the, the people that are with you, listening to you, watching you, however it's taking place, just regard it as to sweep through it gracefully and just laugh it off is a superpower. Mm. I believe anyway. Um, it, you, we're all human. We all make mistakes. To to think anything other than that is complete nonsense you know you're living in a complete dream world um 
and yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on the process part, and that's it's a process. And the more you practice something, the more you'll just improve. And 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 it, and it those those little errors, which are fun in games because we can deal with them. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll just get ironed out. But even as I say this, even as I say to say, oh, it's a process, and it relies on practice. I can hear myself, and I can hear I can put myself in the position of someone listening to this podcast and thinking, yeah, I get that, I, I get it. Um, and then it's a totally different thing to be in it. So what I, and this is what we'll get, I'm doing on the course. It's, it's, I am going to push people to speak on the spot about what you're doing and, the, and, and feel the, the, the anxiety and the sense of, of, Down here. yeah, exactly. And then they will have, you know, challenges to write to a podcast and say, I think I should be a guest. So that they get the chance to go on there and talk. Send them over, over my Ex- way. Well, exactly. I'll be like, I know tons and tons of people with podcasts who've, who've got, you know, interesting. Um, so that so there are opportunities out there to put yourself forward. And I, I'm going to, yeah, to a degree, you just have to sit with it. And that'll be the moment when it's not theoretical anymore. You are, that. those are the moments that matter the most. Um, it's not about understanding conceptually what this is so yeah um it's the practice of it and go reaching your edge and pushing past it in whichever framework of mental visionary stuff you can you can see that being if you could implement only one action or practice in times of adversity what would it be and why meditation i left that out of the story of vietnam um i when i was doing the when i was wanting to get that new job with al I meditated every single day and I think that that just that was the moment when I started to sense my intuition again for sure where I'd completely felt a bit drowned out it felt drowned out before that and I really became clearer and the, the key thing what kind of meditation did you do yeah so this is the thing so people will tell you to meditate right and then you know some people will say oh just sit in silence some people will say download headspace and listen to an audio of guided thing there's obviously hundreds and thousands on youtube but you have to find your way of doing it the way and and you have to know i think what you're actually trying to do and oddly the thing for me was i listened to um like arabic prayer music or arabic music that was meditative i don't know what the hell they're saying um but perhaps it could have connected to me to my earlier life in the in the, the middle east trip or something well i've just always liked that kind of music but it would give me like proper tingles and i felt that this was really important somehow that was reconnecting me to myself in a way that guided meditations just didn't do and um it was it was it was just i don't know it's hard to put into language it made me feel alive and like i was really could hear a more soulful version of the world somehow um and that felt like the right energy that i was trying to reclaim somehow so doing that every day uh, i don't and now i've got various different playlists and they're not all arabic music but they are things that ha- create the same effect and so i almost always have a, have a music in the background yeah that's really cool um I um I really heard there. Uh, I mean, I, I have a similar 
relationship with I, I love music I love broad I like to listen to all sorts of different music and I have one part one um, list I use an app called Tidal for my mm -hmm. music where you get hi-fi quality on your phone and um, there's one particular track I think it's by a guy called Ty Burko something like that I think he's, he's Arabic I think or mm -hmm. at least Middle Eastern um, and I literally learned, learned the words and the, the, I think the words are around a prayer to a prayer to the Krishna or mm -hmm. something, but, but they're they're very they're very meaningful words. But it just repeats over and over. I actually learnt them just to sing because I love the love the sound of mm -hmm. it. But it has that. There's something about a human voice, and especially in a language you don't understand. I think that you're just going with the vibrations of the sound mm -hmm. rather than the meaning. And as opposed, I love singing bowls as well. There's the vibration and the kind of ringing tones of the bowls is fascinating. But it's just the, the vibrancy of the voices. You just you can just disappear in it and just feel really bathed in mm -hmm. that. Um, and I really I really get how that would be. You'd feel more connected to humanity with the human voice being involved as well I, I think that's what i hear in that mm, um yeah well, it's not what i think it's what yeah. i see if you have one what is the one thing you tend to keep in the dark about yourself <laughs> oh <Oops. laughs> i know that question i was thinking like you know in relation to what are my what are my edges um i think i don't i'm pretty i'm pretty much an open book um Obviously, there are some things that are so personal you don't tell any to people other than your close friends. But I, I don't like, as I said again, I don't like being on camera. Um, and I think that's because I do have a slight disconnect sometimes with how I look <laughs> or like my, I don't know. And it's, it's hard to articulate because it, obviously we're on a screen now and I'm completely fine with it. So it's, it's in certain situations and so i avoid that i avoid that a lot and i avoid talking about it either because i think once people think of you as a speaker or, or somebody that you imagine there's a level of comfortability with it but again i think that's a a spectrum and an ongoing thing um yeah i think there's something else that i was going to mention um about this uh that might be relevant um are you so, going to be brave enough? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think I think it was just that I, I think that I don't feel as comfortable in my body a lot of the time as I would like to be. Um, and that, you know, that is a an exploration. <laughs> so as to where that's yeah, yeah. come from and why um, that I'm still figuring out. Uh, I don't know if I, I yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing I wouldn't necessarily talk about immediately. It's not really in my, yeah, it's not in my usual conversations yeah yeah i can see how that that would be i mean i suppose if i if i look look at myself in relationship to what you said i mean i in terms of my body i've always been a little bit chubbier than i would like and but then i say than i'd like i'm just i've been used to being a little bit just a, a little bit carrying a little bit more body fat than I know is probably classed as ideal um, and there's a part of me that feels very comfortable being at that little bit 
chubbier. Mm. <laughs> um, and I'm a fitness professional. You know, I, I work out hard myself. I do a lot of physical training or a reasonable amount at the moment. It's mm. not a lot, but it's uh, it's enough to make me feel like I am advancing week on week, which is cool. Um, but I, I think that uh, the um, the physical appearance and the sensations of that you know, being happy in your own body. I think that's where you're relating this to. Um, being confident that you are the best version of yourself is is um is a is a process to some degree. And there's a part of me that most of the time just does it matter? No. <laughs> it just really doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not unhappy. <laughs> I'm not completely berating myself for being slightly overweight or chubby or however you would like to phrase okay. it. You know. Okay, so this is uh, this is the thing that I want I probably want to say, um, which relates to this because you're right, it is it's actually not about it's not about how I look or the physicality. I remember there was a really clear moment in my early 20s when this change happened. Well, it's not like I remember the moment, but this is when it happened. Before that, I was quite happy, I think, in my body. I, I, when I was a teenager, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't drastically different in terms of my size. It was quite consistent. So it was nothing to do with that. I just had a comfortability with it all that I don't, that's changed in my early 20s. And obviously, the, exploring why that has happened uh, is interesting. But what I've one of my edges of the next year and something I thought about this time last year, but didn't do because I probably wasn't ready. And I don't know if I am ready even now is that I thinking I need to I need to stop drinking alcohol. This is a, a, something I and, and this is not to say I'm not an alcoholic. I don't I'm not a bad drinker at all. I don't overdo it particularly um I'm quite fun drunk actually or like I'm very sociable I I would even go so far as to say is released inhibitions and created some very interesting and unexpected situations so in some and that makes it harder but there's come a point now where I think that that is partly what's influencing this the sense of not having full ownership over yourself and that is in two ways not only the ownership you know the fact that once you start drinking my decision-making metrics change, like my value, almost like my values change. And secondly, I, it's, I feel in going into constant social situations where you're expected to drink alcohol as a means to have fun, me, just gives me, just takes away con control and ownership over my life because, not because again, I get really hungover, because it just on a very minor level affects my energy so much and it does inhibit what I'm able to do or not do after that and um and I think something about that lack of ownership over myself that comes from the both the the, the actual physical impact of, of when you're drinking and also the coercion that comes around it of like you know this is what's expected of you that is stopping me from feeling entirely comfortable in myself in some way. I can't, I'm, I'm not fully through this, so I don't really know what it, how to describe it. I get, I get, I get your view. I get the view and where the context of why you were saying that now. And, and so I, I went off my own rant about imagining what I, I think I had an imaginary idea of what you were thinking about, but I, I have a, I have a similar thing around alcohol in it. In an actual fact, I think the, the 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 key part of this is about the coercion part of it, about the societal norms 
that we're, we're, there's an expectation and when you go out and meet friends oh we'll have a few drinks um or you know we'll go to a particular kind of restaurant or meet in a particular place the thing about the whole thing is that alcohol is the one thing that contributes the least to all of that in many senses because it isn't it's not it's not necessarily the healthy choice right and we, we know that it's it's effectively a poison in some ways um and i am completely with you in that um i i like drinking i really do like drinking so i enjoy I. the fact <laughs> that it makes me feel a bit he feel a bit heady and a bit kind of foolish and feel a bit different and I'm not somebody that's ever really explored drugs in, in other areas. So so alcohol's really been the only thing that I've taken, you know, knowingly taken that has an influence on my psychology, as it were. Um, but at the same time, I hate having a hangover. But more importantly, in recent years, I've realised that it has a big contributory factor to me having poor sleep. And so it's not really about me having a headache the next day. It's the fact I know I'm not going to sleep very well. I'm going to probably lose an hour and a half, two hours sleep. Yeah. Sometimes minimum. Yeah. You know, that's sometimes the minimum if I if I do have a few drinks. And my my few drinks these days is probably, you know, the most I'll have is about three quarters of a bottle of wine over an evening, throughout an evening, or mm. maybe two or three pints of, of beer or, well, it would be cider if I drank, you know, kind of drink bigger drinks. Um and I always, there's almost, there's always a payback. So there is almost, you know, a bit of, you know, headache or not feeling great the next day, not as constructive, not as up for doing what I would have planned to do necessarily. Mm. So I make allowances for that. But the coercion part of it is is the bit that's, the, the bit that's really driving this, I think. Um, and that's the bit that, that I think, is the fit really is the feeling part of it yeah 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 because there's a you know mm -hmm. i mean you smiled when i said we we all we like a few drinks right we do we do like it but we there's a there's a sort of mental subversive bit both inside us and from from pressure outside of us as well um and it is subtle um and it's there and yeah yeah so i can understand how that's a journey for you to 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 get get to a point where you feel like you're working through it and making progress with it and finding a balance that really works for you yeah yeah um yeah. big question where are you winning in li winning in life right now where are you winning in life right mm -hmm. now um where am i winning well i think that i'm winning on my my kind of personal development and my skills development like I think I'm a, a more a better version of myself than I was this time last year I can see the progression and I'm clear about where I'm going and what I want to do and I'm very clear on like the vision of, of things for the future with being more pirate and everything what yeah so um I'm very I'm very I win a lot in my relationships and I value my relationships with people above and beyond anything in my life and I have yeah. lots of good, strong ones, which I'm grateful for. And I have a wonderful family. So those things are, are pretty big. Where do you experience a sense of impossible right now? And how do you intend to progress this into the realm of the possible? I, I never see impossible. Impossible isn't in my mindset. Um, I don't believe in that because humans have the ability to change almost anything. I'd say I believe in difficult. <laughs> And there are yeah, those, yeah. those things that I find are difficult. Um, I think that the I have a very clear vision of where I want the business to go and 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 the 
the movement, but how quite to get there, I am unsure. Part of that is, is within me and my limiting beliefs, and part of it is some practical stuff. But the practical stuff I can address, I can break it down, and I am. I think it's my belief in, you know, it's, it's really a belief in me feeling like I'm the CEO of something in a, in a way, and, and that feels still like a leap. Um, but not impossible at all. So yeah, I think that's probably, like I want it to expand into multiple dimensions and yet it's not at the moment, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. So there's some experimentation to do and sort of growth in that as well, I would think to kind of bring it where you take full ownership of it and really own it like, it, like it's damn real, right? <laughs> it's a journey, it's cool. What question have I not asked you that you would like to be asked so you can answer now? Honestly, Simon, I don't think there is anything that you have said that I particularly want to be asked. Um, I think we've covered covered different ground to what I usually cover, which has been great. Cool, cool. <laughs> the next question, I'm going to ask it anyway. Right? Is there any question you are glad, glad I didn't ask? particularly like I'm 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 an open book generally and I, I'm comfortable with conversations that are more about myself and personal development because obviously I know that well if you'd have asked me some question about what do you think of the situation in this in this respect or something probably that I haven't gotten up to speed on um sometimes I get asked about um particular business scenarios uh and I don't know the answer and then, you know, of course, all your knowledge-based perfectionism kicks in. Um, yeah, I, I have that as well, for yeah. sure. Cool. So, no, there's so, nothing really. <laughs> cool. We're, well, we're done. Okay. Um, I'll edit this out with a, um, well, we should probably just add a bit here. I should say thank you, obviously. So I'm going to do that. We need to do that. <laughs> so, okay, I'm still practicing. I'm still learning. This is a process, course, I right? And I, and I think this is, again, this is this is great, great for you to to learn how you do podcasts. Yeah. So thank you, thank you so much, Alex. It's been it's been amazing to listen to you speak about your life and explain how you got to where you are now. Um, the clearly the seas are, are up and down at times for you in the pirate journey and kind of making this a, a bigger thing in the world and uh, i wish you all the luck in the world with that and really um is what is something we should talk about actually tell us what what you what you're up to right now and how people can get in touch with you as well yeah so you can get in touch i have just relaunched my website so there's Be More Pirate website, which is just www.bemorepirate.com. I also have my own, which is alexbarker.co.uk. And there's loads of information on there about all my work and what I'm doing. And I am about to launch this speaking program um, in the next week or so. And that will start on the 1st of March. So that's really interesting and fun. We're building out Be More Pirate into like training programs at the moment, like long, longer courses and programs as opposed to just one-off workshops and things, which is great and those are so those are the kind of primary focuses i've got at the moment lots of little things in between and clients and um the goal is always to keep on growing the movement and support more people to you know reclaim that level of permission and agency in their life so that they can go on and and change the world in whatever corner they're working in that's absolutely wonderful alex 
thank you so much. It's been awesome talking to you, getting to know you better as well. Um, we will have a meetup soon, I think, in the UK uh, with some fellow coaches. Um, so I'll get back in touch with you. That I'll try and get that organised. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. It's been a, a long conversation, but I have absolutely loved um, this time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. details of today's guest as well as my own please check the show notes thank you for listening today and i have one final request live your i'm possible life